celebrating 10 years of bringing you stories and insights from legends around the world of sports. It's Thursday Night Tailgate. No one gets you inside the mind of the greatest legends in the game like we do. Plus, check out our spotlight on the positive segment to hear the great things players are doing in their communities. Now, sit back, relax, and enjoy the show with your hosts, Chris Mascaro and Bob Lazari. Hey, go get them, guys. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Thursday Night Tailgate, where your favorite NFL legends live. Chris Mascaro and Bob Lazeri back with you one last time this season. That's right. Tonight, we're going to wrap up season number 10 of the show. But you've got us for the next couple of hours, so sit back, relax, let us take your mind off everything else going on in your life. Bob, happy Thursday and season finale, my friend. How are you? I'm doing good, Chris, and uh, it's always a great show when we wrap up the season and you look back on all the great guests we've had and uh tonight is no exception for sure absolutely it's not and yeah you're 100 percent right it's a little bittersweet tonight wrapping up season number 10 but you know what it's been fun catching up with a lot of great friends over the last few months and as a, a Steelers fan this season wasn't a heck of a lot of fun but all the stories that we got to hear this season from our guests and the fun we got to have, plus, you know, obviously getting to spend my Thursday nights this fall and winter with you again for a 10th straight year. Always a privilege, my friend. It's cool. And, uh, you know, we'll wrap up the show with our positive spotlight. And what a heck of a way to wrap up anything, right, Chris? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh, Bob, I want to start this week's show by getting your thoughts on the Super Bowl. Did it live up to your expectations? I don't know about expectations, Chris. I, I think it went kind of the way many of us thought. You know, uh, we had the Rams winning by a field goal or four points, just about the, what the spread was. Uh, I thought there would be a, probably another 15 points scored in that game, uh, you know, in the 30s. But uh, as far as, you know, it being closely contested, um, that's – and back and forth a little bit and, uh, you know, a little drama there. I uh, could foresee that going into the game. You know, I thought the Rams would be able to run the ball better, and I thought the Bengals probably would be able to pass the ball better. Um, and I also think, uh, you know, the uh, it may come down to the last, you know, like a, a field goal by McPherson or something like that. But, you know, what I told Tony Collins right before we left him last week, Chris, you can't, you probably couldn't feel uncomfortable picking the Rams because, they had the best offensive player on the field and the best defensive player. And guess what? Both of them had a major impact, and that's your ball game, right? Yeah, no, 100%. I I thought the game was great. You know, I, I it felt reminiscent to me, Bob, a little bit of the Bengals' Super Bowl loss to the 49ers in Super Bowl twenty three when Montana hit uh, John Taylor with a game-winning touchdown pass with 34 seconds left. But the Rams left Joe Burrow plenty of time to go back down the field. He had a minute 25, and I really thought we were headed for another overtime game this postseason, as so many of the games came down to it this year. But, um, boy, they, they, when I look at Burrow, I really like that kid. He is he is very calm and cool and collected, and he quickly got the Bengals to the 49 of the Rams. So I thought, well, here we go. 
we're going to end up in overtime. But, uh, you know, Cinderella, you know, struck midnight with that offensive line. They had, they had done such a, a good job in the first half, but second half was a completely different game. Burrow got sacked, you know, seven times and it just seemed like they were always in his face in the second half. So, um, they came up a little short, but I thought the game was entertaining. I think you're a hundred percent in the, in the comment you made a moment ago. The best defensive player on the field was Aaron Donald. The best offensive player on the field was Cooper Cup. And both of those guys, it, it, what it felt like, and I was talking about this with our announcer, Joe Lajanusa, before the show, it felt like in that last drive, and that last drive lasted forever. They did a great mm-hmm. job of taking time off the clock. But I but I felt like McVay must have sent, said to Stafford before that last drive started, just throw it to Cup. I don't care if he's open or not. Just throw it to Cup. He'll, he'll make a play. He'll catch the ball. Don't worry about it. No OBJ. The other guys were struggling. They were struggling to move the football. I think McVay just got in his ear and just said, throw it to Cup. And it worked out. I, I, it was I, a great I, play. I, yeah, I can't argue. I mean, and, and, you know, I know they were drawing up plays for him. And, you know, he, he kind of went into a lull in the middle of the game. But you almost knew, man, this guy, he's going to come back to bite you at some point because he's too good. He's, the, 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 you can't overanalyze anything. The guy is just too good. And, and what you said before, Chris, I think was crucial, the seven sacks. I mean, this guy, you know, we had mentioned, too, the offensive line would be a problem. And they actually did a decent job for a half. But it was his undoing, Chris. I mean, the nine sacks, you know, you escaped that against the Titans, but it just, you just can't get sacked seven times. It's never going to, you know, win you a championship. And, that, you know, I know that uh, they were banged up, and that's, it was sad to see, but you knew that would be a factor. But, and I was just thinking, Chris, and you probably don't disagree with this, Cup should have been the MVP of the league, was the Super Bowl MVP, and won the Triple Crown in uh, receiving that has to be near the top of one of the greatest seasons ever i'm talking yes. ever no 100 percent right uh, you can certainly make the argument he was the league mvp so yeah that would have really been something if he could have pulled that that piece off and then tied it all up in a nice bow with the super bowl mvp and obviously the trophy bob on the bengals first possession i want to get your thoughts they decide to go for it on a fourth and one near midfield, they had ran a pass play. It, it goes incomplete to Jamar Chase. How big was that? Decision? I know it's really early in the game, and if you're going to take a gamble, maybe that's the time to do it. But how big is that play now looking back because the Rams take that short field and score their first touchdown? It was it was huge, Chris. You know, I was shocked. I mean, even in this era where guys are, you know, they're going for it more and more and more because of the powerful offenses. But I said to myself, you know, this is the Super Bowl. Uh, you know it's going to be closely contested. I know what Taylor was thinking. You know, let's deliver, you know, an early punch here that says, you know, we're to be, we're to, we're going to be reckoned with here. But it ended up, you know, and, and you probably wouldn't have minded if it, if it led to a field goal, a shot, it led to a touchdown, Chris. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, it, it was something they couldn't recover because they actually came back and took the lead, but, the, the points that were given up at that point was the difference in the game. I mean, so you can, you could say right there that Taylor taking that shot early was, uh, was basically the ball game because, um, you know, given seven points at that point where, you know, he could have punted and probably got the, uh, the other team way down there. Um, and then we don't know what would have happened after that, you know, it's, uh, but yeah, that was, I thought it was huge, Chris, and I was very shocked by it. 
So, Bob, we talk about the, the seven sacks, and like I say, the, the Bengals' O-line was doing a good job in the first half, and I thought they were playing well until they weren't, and that, that was obvious very early in, in the second half. But I want to also get your thoughts. Was, was that the weakest link for the Bengals, or was it Eli Apple? And, you know, I was reading a lot of the stuff leading up to the game, and Eli Apple likes to chirp a lot, likes to talk mm-hmm. a lot of trash, and he certainly did that. And then he gets burned for two touchdowns. So if the Bengals are going to work on something, you would think in the offseason they're going to be bringing in better offensive linemen. But I'm not so sure Eli Apple wasn't somebody they decided to pick on. No, I, I, I totally get it. I, I, I think the offensive line was a bigger weakness, um, you know, because of, well, obviously it just it, at the end, I mean, uh, you got to give your, franchise quarterback uh, chances to, to win games and they just he, he couldn't do it but Apple you know Apple's not the kind of guy I want on my team because we talked about guys like you know they chirp they chirp they chirp and they get burnt you know and, and then they, they'll still chirp you know do you want a guy like that on your team no but I can't really come down on him too hard because you're going against Cup and uh, guys like Cup and, and Beckham two of the best in the business but uh, you know if you're it's one thing to to get beat by better players, but don't chirp about it, right, Chris? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm still in the old school where you know hand, hand the referee the ball when you score a touchdown and, and keep your mouth shut and let you play. You know, dictate uh, what your reputation is and how good you are and and those sorts of things. When you when you start to chirp, then you start to deserve the negative stuff that uh, comes your way. Bingo. And Bob, I'm sure you saw this story, but um, Coach Dan Reeves' daughter, Dana Reeves. Camillus uh, is married to the Rams special teams coordinator, Joe D. Camillus. Um, so Joe was uh, a guy very important in coach's life. He had followed coach around on the staff for in Denver, in New York, in Atlanta. And Joe would regularly call coach to help keep his mind sharp as he was dealing with uh, dementia. Wow. But um, Joe getting a ring, I, I feel like is sort of a, a nice you know, honor to coach, right? Something that, uh, Coach can smile down, you know, on the, on what Joe continued to accomplish in his coaching career as it, as it continues to build and obviously happy for his daughter as well. But I thought that was sort of a nice cherry on top for the Rams winning the Super Bowl. I'm glad you brought that up, Chris. We, we've, uh, put it out there how, how much coach meant to this show and we'll always mention him at the end of the show, but. Uh, you have a feeling that he, you know, uh, he was kind of looking down on that and said, you know, this is a guy that deserves it. And, um, you know, uh, from a sad happening, everything, and, and, you know, that's as close as you're going to get to making Bronco fans happy this year because a, a guy upstairs is looking down and uh, his son-in-law's um, got the job done. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. That was terrific. Yeah, that's a great story. So kudos to the Rams and, of course, to our announcer, Joe Lajanusa, and my other buddy, Bob Andriano, two huge Ram fans. Happy for all of you guys. You guys brought it home, and uh, I hope you continue to celebrate this uh, long into uh, the spring and summer. It's time for another edition of Bob's Take. So, Bob, tell us, what's on your mind tonight? Bob, I want to start this season's final edition of Bob's Take by getting your thoughts on the Rams' off-season strategy. 
as we've seen over the last few years, they're not shy about trading draft capital to bring in veteran players that are getting the job done. We've we've seen it with with Stafford, we've seen it with Von Miller, we've seen it with OBJ, we've seen it with a lot of other players. So, Bob, I, I want to get your thoughts. Do you think that, first of all, that they make a run at making sure all 22 starters come back like the Bucks did last year or for this season? And then uh, since it's such a copycat league, do you think other teams might start scratching their heads and say, you know what? Hey, it's a crapshoot in the draft. Only about a third of those guys actually turn out to be what they what teams are hoping they would be. And maybe it is a, a smarter idea to trade away the draft capital in in order to get players that you know are good. Well, this is a this is a unique situation, Chris, because they they don't have too much cap space, this team. Um and as we mentioned throughout the playoffs, they were built to win this year. That is it. You know, and, and uh, like you said, they had mortgaged some things. They had done this, done that. But they do not have much leeway here, you know, as far as what they can do. Now, you know, a guy like Von Miller, he's thirty, going to be 33 years old, Chris. You know, I, I don't think a team, any team out there would want to give him a long-term deal, you know. Uh, so it's it's all about, I think, a guy like Aaron Donald. And if you saw the parade... Him and McVeigh are kind of saying, there's no reason why we can't come back and do this again. Now, you know, when, when that's in the heat of battle and it's kind of excitement and at a parade and everything. But once things settle down, you know, if Donald says, I'm coming back, and then you might have some, some weight as far as, you know, some of these other guys. Maybe Miller comes back in a very short-term deal just to try to get that second Super Bowl. Now, Beckham's injury probably guarantees that. He might be able to come back if the Rams, you know, depending on what they find. Uh, but those are your main ones. You know, you got a guy like Sony Michelle. I don't think it'd be a major thing if he went somewhere else. But, you know, if they can get a couple of these guys back, Chris, I mean, again, uh, you know, losing Donald would be big, uh, as we said, you know, such an impact player. They got caught for a couple more years. I mean, they're going to be fine there, but you're probably going to have to get somebody for Beckham. Uh, maybe a veteran guy in there at least to pick up the slack if and when Beckham comes back. Uh, but I think again, I think it revolves around Donald's decision. You know, um, it's huge because, uh, you know, I, from what I gather, he's saying, you know, we can do this and he's still got a lot of great football in him. So, uh, maybe he comes back for one more year and, and McVeigh says, I'm definitely back. Then you probably can make some of these other decisions easier. But um, again, the problem was again they're they're kind of strapped. You know, if these guys are interested in the championship, another title, Chris, they can do it. If they're all interested in breaking the bank, it's going to be tough. Bob, uh, moving on to the Kyler Murray situation in Arizona, as we all know, he deleted following the Cardinals on all of their social media platforms. Is this an attention-getting ploy for some reason from Murray, or do you think he really wants out of Arizona? What's your take? Well, now, the more you read about, well, the more you see things happening, now it's it's the the players have so much power, Chris, because they're making so much money. You know, they can do a year or two here. If they don't like the way it is, ah, let me go somewhere else where there's a better chance of winning. You know, without putting in the time and everything, I think there's, I think with Murray, there's a lot of immaturity there still. I mean, I, I was listening to Dan Patrick this week, 
And, uh, you know, he said, this guy's got to learn to take some criticism. You know, I think he started hearing a couple things, and it's like, you know, um, it, there's a lot of ego there, there's a lot of immaturity, you know, uh, but he, you know, he probably got rid of his accounts, uh, social media, because, you know, to bring attention to himself, you know, and Patrick said it's all about money. He wants to get the Josh Allen treatment, but guess, guess what, Chris? He's not Josh Allen. <laughs> <laughs> right. Bob, one more, and last week we talked about this, you know, win or lose, would the Bengals even be the favorites next season in their own conference, in the AFC, and the sports books have put them behind the Chiefs and the Bills. The Chiefs are opening up as a 13-2 to favorite to win the Super Bowl next season. The Bills are 7-1, to the Rams are 10-1, to the Bengals are 12-1. to Does that sound about right to you? Well, you know, I mean, if you do a little research, Chris, I think the loser of Super Bowls have only gone on to to come back eight times to a, to the next year's Super Bowl. You know, obviously a team like Buffalo did it a few times, but you know it's not easy for a losing. So that's probably why you have a team like Cincinnati. They're still going to be in there, but you know the Chiefs on paper probably have a better offense, probably have better personnel here and there, um, and you know I I think they figure in, you know the the. The, the desire to come back and, and win a Super Bowl and, and what's at stake and everything. So thinking the Chiefs would be very close up there. It doesn't surprise me. Buffalo, you know, it, they're a move away from probably being a Super Bowl team. You know, I think they're gonna they're gonna tweak that a little bit. Um, and you know, the Bengal the Rams, obviously, depending on what happens, they're probably still going to be very good. Uh, I think we can answer this question more, you know, probably in April or May, but, uh, but all those teams you mentioned, I mean, they're all going to be there, but it doesn't surprise me that the Rams and Bengals, uh, are down a little bit because let's face it, Chris, they were four, four seeds coming in, got hot at the right time, are well coached. And, uh, especially in this year, as you and I talked about all year long, anything could happen. And it did. <laughs> it did. All right, that's this week's edition of Bob's Take. Folks, we've got a jam-packed show for you tonight with our guests, Leonard Marshall, Tony Collins, Mike Pritchard, Mark Collins, and Vance McDonald. We're going to be right back with Leonard Marshall right on the other side of this real quick station break. This is Reggie Kelly, former Cincinnati Bengals and Atlanta Falcons tight end, and you're listening to TNT, Thursday Night Tailgate. Brace yourself for the explosion. All right, now back in making his seventh appearance with us here on Thursday Night Tailgate, his former Giants Pro Bowl defensive tackle and two-time Super Bowl champion Leonard Marshall. Let me remind you about Leonard's background. He's from Franklin, Louisiana, played his college ball at LSU from 1979 to 1982, and he was named Team MVP in his senior year of 82. In the classroom, Leonard earned his undergraduate degree in business administration in 1984, his certificate in management and later his master's degree from Seton Hall in finance in 2007. He was a second round draft pick, the 37th selection overall in 1983 by the Giants, played in the league from 83 to 1994, 10 of those seasons in New York with the Giants. He also played one season on the other side with the Jets and then one season with the Redskins. He was named to the Pro Bowl three times in 1985, 86, and 91. Like I said, Leonard was a part of two of the Giants Super Bowl championship teams in 1986 and 1990. He was inducted into the Louisiana Sports Hall of Fame in 2008. And how this man is not in the Giants' ring of honor remains a mystery to both Bob and I. 
But we are very thankful he is with us again tonight here on Thursday Night Tailgate. Hey, Leonard, Chris, and Bob, thanks for coming back Hi, on the show. Hey, fellas, good evening. How you guys doing? We're fantastic. Leonard, how have you been, my friend? I've been well, man. I got to tell you, you know, I've been well and and as healthy as I can be. You know, it's it's a crazy time for me, you know, uh, this time of year because I'm going through convulsions that there's no more football to watch. (laughs) (laughs) Aren't we all? (laughs) Yeah, but other than that, you know, I'm uh, I'm excited. I'm going to be a grandpa in May. Uh, my son and his yeah, my son and his wife uh, uh, just found they, they're pregnant. Uh, it's a baby boy, and uh, so I'm gearing up for that. We just purchased a new home here in New Jersey because um, we needed some space, not just for the baby, but I picked up a hundred pound lab, and I'm actually oh training as a show dog right now, That's and uh, I'm having a little bit of fun with that. You know, life's good, man. Life's good, good for you, Leonard. And Leonard, you recently tweeted out your respect for Ernie Ladd, a fellow Louisiana native, a guy who played nine years in the AFL with the Chargers, Oilers, and the Chiefs. And for those folks who aren't familiar with how good Ernie was, talk about why you have such great respect for him. Well, first first off, Ernie's a relative. Um, uh, Ernie's a relative. He, he married my uh, my second cousin. Uh, Rosalind Ladd, who, and he resided in Franklin, Louisiana after his career ended, um, and raised his family in Franklin, Louisiana. He actually was, is buried in Franklin, Louisiana, believe it or not. Uh, but I watched Ernie. I, I, I ran around with Ernie during his career. Um, they had this huge Winnebago that he would run around in, and in the off season, he would wrestle. Uh, he was a, uh, uh, back in the day, I'm trying to remember what what did they call it. Uh, it became WWE, but it was something else. Um, I guess the American Wrestling Federation. And uh, so he, he he would wrestle guys like Dusty Rhodes, uh, Andre the Giant. We called him Andre the Dummy, of course. Uh, <laughs> and all these different characters, man. So I got a chance to run around with him when I was a kid in his Winnebago, eating tuna fish sandwiches and playing checkers. <laughs> um, in the off season, yeah, it was great, man. I tell you, it was great because I got a chance, I guess, to see what that lifestyle was for him um, in pro football at the end of his career. You know, with, with five or six kids running around, wife, and you know, a big old home in Texas, and um, you know, I think his career ended in Houston with the Houston Oilers. Mm-hmm. Leonard, you also posted recently on, on Wednesday night something that uh, I wanted to chat about a bit, and that is former Dolphins linebacker Brian Cox, who, oh, by the way, is celebrating a birthday today, so happy birthday, Brian. He's been added to the Giants coaching staff as an assistant D-line coach. Talk about the Giants bringing him in. Well, I think it's, I think it could be good for the Giants to have a guy who – who really played in the era of football when football was really football. And, and you know, I have a lot of respect for Brian. I think he was a hell of a player with the Miami Dolphins. I got a chance to watch him play, being that I lived in Boca Raton for a minute and owned Dolphins season tickets for about four or five years. So um, um, uh, Brian's a guy that, that, that I'm looking forward to uh, watching how he moves around the complex, how he gets, you know, deeply involved with the players. 
I think they need to have a guy who has a uh, 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 a pedigree of playing the game in the National Football League and knowing the ins and outs and the do's and don'ts and where you should be, where you shouldn't be, and and a true technician to the game. I think the game has missed that for some of these young kids. I think a lot of these young kids that are in the game today, they don't they 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 don't quite understand um the technical aspect of the game in in, in terms of uh the schemes and defenses they play, um the run game that the offensive linemen uh actively compete and, and, and play in and so forth and so on. So from a technical aspect, I think you'll be good for uh, this young giant defensive line. And uh and in the locker room I think he'll be really good for them because uh you know, his no nonsense approach or what I figure would be his no nonsense approach because he was a no nonsense player in Miami and of course in New England, uh, when he worked for Bill Belichick for a hot minute. Uh so, you know, it's it's gonna be interesting to see uh uh and see and really come to understand, you know, uh, the respect that these players gone for him. Uh, in that locker room and on that football field. So, Leonard, what do the Giants need on top of bringing in Brian Cox? I mean, they haven't had a winning season since 2016 and only one winning season going back as far as 2013. What does this team need in order to get back to being competitive in the NFC East? Wow, guys, I wish I had that that magic potion to tell you what that is. You know, I guess I could put it in a cup and have them drink it all. You know, it would be a, a, a great thing for them. I think, I think what they should go back to and look at is how the team that I played on was built from 1983 through 1988. How, how our football team was built. Because that football team and, and the defensive scheme that we played and the team that we built from 83 all the way up to 88, uh, which is the year that we released Harry Carson as a player, and I'm still disappointed because I thought he could have played two more seasons uh, and possibly got that second ring. Um, I think if they go back to, 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 to looking at how the, how the 86 Giant football team was built, you know, the type of player that Parcells drafted, the type of coaching that Parcells instilled, the type of leadership and football integrity that Bill Belichick demanded from the group of guys that we had, and you look at that scheme of guys and, and the longevity of their careers. I mean, you know, I, I could name two players on my team, you know, that, that, that played 10 years right alongside me and, and didn't miss a beat. One of them is a cornerback who was probably 11th round pick in Mr. Perry Williams, number 23. And Perry Williams could, could, could play, probably play cornerback for the Giants for 13 years if he had to. The kid was always in shape. He was a true technician. He was a, a, a stalwart in terms of uh, studying, playing his technique, knowing the personnel of the game, and being a student of Bill Belichick's defense. You know, they need to get guys like that involved in the program again. And and I don't know, you know, what it's going to take to do that, but find a way to do that. Because, you know, you can score all the points in the world, and I know today's game is about scoring, and today's game is about getting the ball down the field. But if you can't stop anybody, you're damn sure not going to win. Five questions for Leonard. 
Yeah, great to speak with you again, uh, Leonard. And, and staying on that same topic, I, I, I totally agree with what you said about Brian Cox. You need a guy like that, uh, you know, and he's not going to be for the faint of heart. He's going to be on these guys. Uh, but let's face it, those Giants, they just needed uh, some major offense. And I think Dable, the new coach, uh, is the kind of guy that can develop a quarterback if Jones is the guy. But more than that, Leonard, I'm sure you see a guy like Saquon Barkley who probably hasn't been used correctly, but more important, he can't stay healthy. I'm sure you've run into guys like this before. Is he the kind of guy he needs to be on the field for them to at least score points and win? We had a back like that, Bob, that we drafted in 1985. Uh, and his name was George Adams. And he was a running right. back out of Kentucky. First round draft pick. A high first round draft pick. Because remember, you know, we, we were a postseason team in 84, which meant that we picked down the line in 85. So, so George Adams, as talented as he was, he couldn't stay on the field. He just couldn't stay, he couldn't stay healthy, stay on the field. So he became more of a special teams player, uh, than a running back in our offense. And then we turned around in 86 and we traded for Otis Anderson because we couldn't get the productivity we needed out of George Adams. So, you know, a lot of people don't remember that about giant football. I do because I was deep in the middle of it and, and, and a guy who was, uh, you know, looking for our offense to try to get better and score points, even though we didn't depend on it. Um, I think the same thing applies here. I think that, uh, you know, Taekwon was a hell of a college, uh, running back and a hell of a college player. Uh, and I take, I don't take anything away from him. I thought he was going to be an unbelievable pro. Um, I met him this rookie season. Um, uh, my wife and I took pictures with him. Uh, we talked to him a little bit. You know, his, uh, his uncle is, uh, uh, was a boxer, uh, and his uncle was, uh, has had a uh, major influence in his life. Uh, and, uh, I, I, you know, I, I just, I guess I just, I, I, I kind of expected more, you know, and, and I think we haven't gotten that more, you know, and, and, and it takes me back to my thought the year that he came out. You know, I thought the best athlete in the draft, believe it or not, was Lamar Jackson. And I thought that those two running backs from Georgia were a slight bit better than Saquon. Um, but, you know, the Giants didn't, didn't go that direction. They didn't look at Tony Michelle and, and I guess Nick Chubb wasn't available when it was their time to pick. So, you know, it is what it is. Leonard, when you came into the league in 83, uh, you know, I just wanted to ask you about the influences that some guys had on you as a rookie. You mentioned Harry Carson. I mean, when you look at those linebackers on that roster, Kelly and Van Pelt, and of course, LT was still young at the time, but a guy, but as far as veterans who you could look up to, you know, people forget Van Pelt probably could have played professional baseball. He was an amazing athlete. But uh, talk about these guys and uh, how they made you a better pro. Well, Van Pelt and Kelly were, 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 were big influence. Uh, uh, in the locker room and, and on the practice field as defensive players. They were well respected. We got to remember they were coached by Bill Parcells. Um, um, that whole crew was coached by Bill Parcells and they called themselves the Crunch Bunch. Um, and then they called, they ended up becoming the big blue wrecking crew, uh, uh, which we took over that, that name, um, as a defense in the, uh, in the mid eighties. But, 
You know, um, I think the guys, there were three guys in my locker room, my rookie year, that, uh, that really took an influence, uh, um, uh, over me. One was George Martin, who became like a big brother to me and, um, and helped guide me through a lot of the, the, the pressures of being a high round draft pick and, uh, and would always encourage me to, to do better, be better, uh, and think. Uh, and think and not just react. He, he knew I was a little bit stubborn. He knew I was a hard-headed guy. He knew I, uh, um, I came from a background where I was the big chief. You know, I, I, I didn't have to work so hard and things just happened for me because of my natural athletic ability. Um, at the next level, everyone was big, fast, and strong and he would tell me, why don't you gotta be smart about this? This is a game that's a technician game. So every day you come out here, I want you to find a way to do something better every day. Always be willing to better your best. So I would work with George, and I would work with with, with another guy, an offensive lineman by the name of J.T. Turner, who uh, who uh, who I still respect the hell out of. Uh, one of my greatest influencers um, outside of Lawrence was, was a gentleman by the name of Beasley Reese. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Beasley and his wife Paula. Uh, I spent a lot of time around him at his home, you know, watching the way he moved, watching the way he did things. You know, he was a big family guy, and uh, he was well-respected by most of the guys on the team. Uh, you know, some of the other cats, Ernest Gray, uh, um, um, Mark Haynes, um, um, Mike Dennis, uh, just a, a bunch of those guys, Bill Currier, uh, Mike Mayock. Uh, Mike Mayock, who was on the, uh, on the 83 squad, you know, uh, just watched the way those guys moved around and, uh, you know, and took a lot of, uh, uh, mental stuff from them and, and used it and applied it to what I was trying to do and accomplish. And I think that, um, you know, given the fact that I bought into the program and I bought into the things that George was in my ear about and, uh, and Brad Benson was in my ear about, and every time I stepped on the field, I just kept trying to get better and better and better and better. And every year, the productivity showed up. I mean, 84, I lead our defensive line in sack. 85, I'm defensive lineman of the year. 86, Lawrence and I come back with this 33 and a half quarterback sacks between the two of us. I'm defensive lineman of the year again. So, you know, all that, all that, that happened happen for all the right reasons, then, you know, if there's any one thing that I would say to a young player, it would be this. As long as you're green, you'll continue to grow. It's when you think you're right, you'll begin to rot. And don't never rest on, don't rest on what you did yesterday. Rest on what you can do tomorrow, and you'll never get any rest. Leonard, I want to get your thoughts on, on patience with head coaches. And if you look right now, right, Ben McAdoo didn't even get two full seasons as head coach of the Giants. Pat Shermer, Joe Judge got two seasons apiece. And I'm not really all that sure how much talent they had to work with when they got there. How much time do you need to give a head coach to to figure out if he's the right guy or not? Thomas, that's a very tough question. You know, that is a very tough question. That 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 is like... It's a trick question. It's a gift and a curse. You know, you, you inherit a team uh, that you didn't select. 
So it's almost like that old adage that Bill Parcells uses. If you want me to cook the gumbo, you should at least let me pick the ingredients. Right? So in this case, you inherit a team like the previous two coaches you talked about. What did you inherit? You inherited somebody else's mess. So if you don't give a guy the time to pick the ingredients and, 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 and see what he could come up with. And that's if he really got a plan and a strategy. And, and hope that, you know, things get better and you can see continuity along the way. You can see guys practicing better, lifting more weights, spending more time in the classroom, taking playbooks home, you know, studying away from the game, spending more time with the trainers and working on their health and their flexibility. All that stuff is all attributed to the success of an athlete. I don't know if today's player is built like that. That's what the biggest question is for me because I've not been in an NFL locker room in almost 25 years. Leonard, switching gears to your alma mater, LSU. Were you surprised, speaking of coaches, that they let Ed Orgeron go? after he took them to an undefeated national championship just a couple of years ago. Well, that that situation is a very touchy one. That that one's a very touchy one because Ed and I go back, way back, fellas. Ed Ogeron was uh, was part of my freshman class at LSU. And he was literally going to be my probably my backup at LSU as a defensive lineman. And um, he left camp. And transferred to another school, I guess, because he thought he wouldn't play right away or he wouldn't play for a while. We just had a, a, a rambunctious class of guys that came in in 1979 that, uh, and, and a bunch of guys that ended up becoming real big time players at LSU. Um, but, but, but Eddie's history at LSU as a coach, I thought was, uh, was extremely short lived. I think the program got away from him. Uh, at some point, and I don't know when that was or how that even happened to even comment on it. But, you know, I had heard rumbling, uh, out of Florida and out of Alabama that, uh, things were changing at LSU, that, uh, there were some problems with recruiting. There were some problems with manning the ship. There were some problems with discipline. There were some problems with, uh, uh, civil and sexual assault. On, uh, on females on campus by athletes and, uh, all that kind of stuff. When there's rumblings like that, they can become a deterrent to what you're overall looking to accomplish. And, um, you know, I, I wish, I wish that that didn't happen for him because, um, you know, his, his journey at LSU was, was quite, quite extremely well, and uh, um, um, he was all about the state of Louisiana, all about the kids, all about the program. I just think the program became a bit big for him and uh, and became a little bit overwhelming. Leonard, one more before we let you go. And like I said at, sure. uh, at the top, your fifth all-time in Giants history in sacks was 79 and a half. You're four and a half ahead of O.C. Umanura. You have more tackles than O.C. does, and nothing against O.C., but he's in the Giants' ring of honor, and for some reason, you're not. How can that be? Well, actually, to correct that, I'm third in quarterback sacks all the time, and I'm second in tackles 
all-time for any defensive lineman in the history of the Giants. I've made several all-decade teams, all-New York Giants teams. Uh, you, you don't mention Giants defensive football without mentioning my name. I don't understand how the politics of football get in the way of, of the play, of my play on the field. I've never been to jail or civil assaulted someone. I don't have a drug problem. I, I don't understand the politics behind why that has not taken place. For me and my family, it would be quite the honor to be, to have my career recognized for what I did as an athlete. I mean, at the end of the day, it's what most players look for. What we did made us heroes. What we need now makes us human. A human played the game of football in that giant uniform. That human deserves some respect. All I'm looking for is a little bit of that. Leonard, before we let you go, let our listeners know what you're doing now. Now I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I, I, I did dabble in, in, in a few different business opportunities. I'm involved in a coffee business here in New Jersey called Joe Zone. Um, uh, my business is JoeZone.com. Um, I'm doing some, some infrastructure work, um, uh, right now. I'm also getting into this, uh, this NFT stuff and cryptocurrency. I think it's the next wave of, of business. I think it's metaverse platform that Facebook has created, um, and, and others like them especially the company Coinbase, I think is going to be huge in years to come. Um, I'm looking forward to producing an NFT uh, of some sort with uh, uh, um, uh, a couple of people that I've been speaking with right now in the sports area. Um, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm having a little bit of fun. You know, it's not bad turning 60 years old. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. I'm a few years away, so it's good to know. Yeah. Yeah. Leonard, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show again tonight. We always have so much fun with you. Thank you so much for being here. It's always good to talk to you. Love you guys to death, man, and keep doing what you're doing and knocking it out the park. Yeah, we love Uh, you too, man. We appreciate you, Leonard. Take care. Stay safe. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up soon. Take care. Chris and Bob. Be well, fellas. Okay. Thank you, Leonard. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That's the great Leonard Marshall. What a great guy, Bob. I love talking to him. Yeah, he's uh, very candid, uh, and everything that comes out of his mouth is usually the truth. So, uh, but yeah, he, uh, what a player, man. If you know, if you're familiar with all those giant teams that won Super Bowls and just those names that I reeled off, uh, on defense, uh, it's, it's almost scary how good they were, but he was a major part of their success. No question about that, Chris. Absolutely, he was. All right, we've got our next guest, Tony Collins, hanging on the line. We're going to get to Tony on the other side of this real quick station break. You're listening to Thursday Night Tailgate with Chris Mascaro and Bob Lazari, where NFL legends live on. Back to you, boys. All right, now back with us here on Thursday Night Tailgate is former Patriots Pro Bowl running back Tony Collins. Hey, Tony, how are you, my friend? Tony. Doing fantastic. How you doing, Chris and Bob? Are you Tony? Are you doing fantastic, Tony? <laughs> hey, hey, I was, I was, a, I was a second away. I was a second away from from winning that whole thing because you know, you know, Chase was open on that last play. 
Could have easily won. Aaron Donald should be MVP, man. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a lot of people saying that, so I don't disagree. <laughs> but so close, Tony. So close. Took it from yeah. me. Aaron Donald took it from me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So just to recap for everybody, so Tony had a one-game lead going in, and he took the Bengals, which surprised the heck out of me. I was all, already listening to Tony and his explanation and who he's going to pick, and I thought, well, he's taking the Rams. And then he did a a, a, a change of presto on me and, and took and went with the Bengals. So I guess I guess Bob, the question to you is, would would you have taken the Rams? I know you had you had to go the opposite in order to stay in the race, and I was begging you, so I didn't have to send anything to Tony. So you went with the Rams, <laughs> but but I know you had you know you're on another radio show earlier in the week. Did you did you take the Rams there too, or no, did you really you know, think the Bengals? Honest- yeah, in all honesty, I was leaning early in the week. I was leaning in the Cincinnati direction, and you know, as the as the week went on, you know, I became more aware of like the holes in that offensive line. And then the last thing I told Tony, you know, because picking when you have the best offensive player on the field and the best defensive player on the field, uh, and in this case, they they obviously came through. But yeah, I I, I thought they'd win by a field goal. I thought it'd be more high scoring. But yeah, I gave the edge to the Rams right at the end there. And, uh, but yeah, Tony's right. It could have gone either way. You know, flip a coin in that kind of game because if it went another five minutes, who knows what could have happened. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Tony, it came down to points. You picked a total of 71. Bob had 64. Obviously the, the total was 43. So Bob takes the trophy this year. Thank goodness. So, uh, now, now I don't have to. Congratulations. Congratulations, yeah. Bob. I'm tired, there you go, Bob. Tony. I was, you know, chased a chased a running back for a long time there at the end, man. That, that was tough. <laughs> you know? but, that's right. That's right. Tony. I, Tony was on a breakaway, and Bob caught him from behind at the one yard yeah, line. I'm tired. I'm tired. You ran me down, Bob. You ran me down. <laughs> so, Tony, give us your overall thoughts of the game. What'd you think? I thought it was a great game, man. You know. uh like I always said, defense wins championship. And, uh, if, you know, okay, even, even on the third down play, when Aaron Donald stops the guy, I mean, he just really dragged the guy from, uh, from fourth and one. I mean, he just, he just manhandles the guy. And, and now you, you got, you got a fourth and one. There's, they, they don't even want to do a quarterback sneak because Aaron Donald's there. <laughs> so, right. you know, it's, 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 it's a, it's a crazy game, man. But, uh, you know, the, I don't know how many sacks they had, seven sacks. Seven, that, right. That, yeah, you can't, you can't give up seven sacks and think you're gonna, uh, win a game like that. It, it's just hard on a quarterback. I thought the kids played his best, uh, being under so much pressure. To, I mean, I mean, the first half he was, he was running for his life, but he got some plays off. But the second half, it was just, you know, I think, I think they, I think they only had one sack in the first half. And then the second right. half, it was like six sacks. So it's just, you know, the defense, uh, uh, that, that front, I don't know who that other guy is, that number 94. I can't think of his name right now, but that defensive tackle is pretty good too. <laughs> I mean, they, 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 they won the game on defense at, at the end, man. So, you know, hats off to, to, 
to the Rams. I, I'm really happy for uh, Stafford, you know, coming, being, being that great quarterback in Detroit for all those years and not even getting close to, to a, a Super Bowl. He gets his chance, uh, one shot with LA and, uh, just like Brady did. You know, going going to Tampa Bay, he goes to L.A. and wins the Tampa. So, so very happy for him. Uh, it was a good game to watch, man. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Too. Tony, Bob and I talked about this at the top of the show. But the Bengals, on their first drive, decide to go for it on fourth and one and don't get it and turn the ball over to the Rams right there at midfield. And the Rams take that short field, go in for a touchdown and, and, and the 7 nothing lead. How big – and like like I said to Bob, I get that it was the first series of the game, and I know you've got a long way to make up for that and all that sort of thing, and if you're going to take a chance, best probably to try to take that chance early. Um, your thoughts on how big that play was, even though it came right at the beginning of the first quarter? I thought it was huge. I mean, it, it, was, it was, you know, it, 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 it almost takes me back to our, our Super Bowl against Chicago Bears. And I'm not saying things will go differently, but we came out believing that we were going to win the game. And first, Chicago gets the ball. I second or third plate, Walter Clayton fumbles the ball on their 20, 25 yard line, whatever it was. Uh, and, uh, so we're, we're down, you know, if we, if we score a touchdown, man, we, we, we're, it's, the, it's just like, this is what we want. And so, Stanley Morgan runs the plant route. I forget what who line, what the linebacker was. It might have been Singletary. Singletary tips the ball, and if Singletary doesn't tip the ball, Stanley Morgan has, gets the touchdown. We go up seven nothing, but instead we go up three to nothing. And then it, it's just it's just like a it takes your breath from you know when you know you know you should have scored a touchdown and you don't. And the same thing with with Cincinnati. You 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 got that fourth and one. The chances, you're, 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 what you're doing now, you, you, you're trying to feel somebody out. Put the ball, but, uh, you know, the Cincinnati, uh, defense was playing good in the, in the first half. They played good defense, but, uh, I thought anyway, against the run. So punt the ball and, and see what happens. But yeah, I, I thought it was a huge play, uh, uh, definitely for Cincinnati. And Tony, the flagrant missed. 75-yard touchdown that T. Higgins got, you know, that, that we saw the face mask. Everybody saw it. They des- It doesn't get called, and they come right out and, and score a touchdown on the first play of the second half. Um, if Cincinnati were to go on to win the game, are we looking at a, a situation next year where maybe in the playoffs, maybe only in the Super Bowl, whatever, but all of a sudden we're back to pass interference and stuff like that being challengeable? Because that one play changes the whole complexion of the Super Bowl. I mean, you 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 could be right, but you know what? The NFL, you know, it's it's they make mistakes, and that was a big mistake uh, that they made. And, and the rest, you know, you 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 take that back to uh, the New Orleans Saints game when uh, the right. you know the game that they had they had the pass interference and they should have won the game and went to the Super Bowl and they didn't. That that's a play where it's just you, you, you kill a team. Uh, I mean, it just really destroys the team. And something has to be done about that. You, I mean, that's just. Uh, I think the the referee couldn't see the face mask, but I mean, everybody, the other refs could have. I know they saw it. They did, they just didn't call it. 
But the ref that was down there, uh, I don't think he saw the face mask, and that, that's the reason why he didn't throw the flag. But yeah, I mean, it, 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 it's it's a you know it's a mistake, you know, and 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 those, these guys are human, and, and but that's why we have the uh, <laughs> they have all those film, uh, all those cameras out there to do a replay, and I I think something like that should be challenged. Uh, coach, they see something like that, that's that should be able to challenge, but a uh, 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 uncalled penalty is. You know, I don't, you can't challenge that. I don't think. I don't know what. Right. It's something that needs to, something that needs to be corrected. Absolutely. Bob, what are your, what are your thoughts on the, on the missed face mask? Oh, that was, it was so glaring, Chris. And I said, you know, I don't know how they, but you know, I, I read after the game about uh, the referees saying they don't think it affected the play. I said, what, they don't think it affected, what were they watching? You know, I mean, right. you're going to pull a guy's head and, and it didn't affect, I, I, I guess they had to say something. They had to give an explanation, but I thought that was so weak. But you're right, that can't happen anymore. And, um, you know, and that, that just, uh, next year should be different. But, Tony, I wanted to give a shout out to your buddy Stanley Morgan. You just mentioned him. He turned 67 today. And uh-huh. you and I have talked about his greatness. I think he's all of fame worthy. There was no better receiver in the late 70s, early 80s. And just tell our viewers, you know, what kind of guy he was and how he's doing now. Stanley's doing fantastic, man. He, he plays in my golf tournament every year that I had it. Uh, we do other golf tournaments together. He is, uh, <laughs> One of the one of the greatest guys, the nicest guys you ever want to meet, man. Sandy will give you the 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 coat off his back, and and rightly so. He should be in the Hall of Fame. I don't know, you know, back when when Stanley was playing, you know, he didn't he didn't get he didn't get ten passes, you know, ten ten targets a game. You know, it was three, four, five targets a game, but but when he caught it, it was for twenty yards or more. Right. <laughs> so, right. And, it's a, it's a, it's a shame that he's not in. Uh, hopefully that, you know, you know, one day he can he will get in because, uh, his, his stats, if they, if, if, if you look at the stats and you see that, uh, yards per catch, I mean, it's, 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 un, it's, un, it's unbeatable. You just don't have, just don't have the numbers that's all the other receivers because we weren't, we weren't a passing team like that. We just, we just didn't pass the ball. We, we ran first and then we threw second. So, uh, unfortunately for Stanley, uh, that still shouldn't stop him from, uh, getting into Hall of Fame. Just a super guy. And I, and I, I you know what? I truly believe because he's such a great guy, it's all going to mm-hmm. come back to him and he, he will get into Hopefully. the Hall of Fame. I'm, I'm really pulling for that. Well, Tony, thank you for another great season, my friend. You always make this segment so much fun. You know how much we love you and <laughs> we're looking forward to, uh, we're looking forward to next season when I win the trophy. That's what we're looking forward to. <laughs> hey, Bob, hey, Bob what, what, I want to ask Bob a question. When was the last time that Chris won? <laughs> That's well, right. When you know, was the last time? <laughs> and we're not about to give him one either, Tony. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely not. I'm going to tell you right now, Chris, I'm, I'm already a little upset that Bob beat me and took the trophy from me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm coming after Bob next year. And, and, and when, when I'm coming after Bob, I'm going to run you over and get to Bob. <laughs> so you don't got any sense. He's done it before. Well, I know he's done it before, but that, 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 those days are all over. Next year, the trophy's staying home in my house. 
I promise you that. <laughs> Tony, you're the best, my friend. We love you. Stay, stay safe Great and well. Time, All the best man. to you and your family. Keep in touch, Tony. Great time. God bless, guys. Have a fantastic night. Great time. All right, All right man. Take see you, Tony. That's the great Tony Collins. We've got our next guest, Mike Pritchard, hanging on the line. Going to get the mic right on the other side of this real quick station break. Thursday Night Tailgate, where the spotlight is always on the positive. Tune in Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time to hear your favorite NFL legends, players, and coaches sharing their stories. Now back to Chris and Bob. I wouldn't joke about anything else that happened to you tonight. Uh, now back with us here on Thursday Night Tailgate is former wide receiver Mike Pritchard. Let me give you some background on Mike. He was born on Shaw Air Force Base in South Carolina and grew up in Las Vegas. Played his college ball at the University of Colorado, where he helped them to a share of the national championship in 1990. And that season, Mike was voted team MVP. He was inducted into Colorado's Hall of Fame in November of 2015. He was a first-round draft pick, the 13th overall selection by the Atlanta Falcons in 1991, and he played in the league from 91 to 1999 for the Falcons, Broncos, and Seahawks. Over the course of his NFL career, he had 422 receptions for just under 5,200 yards and 26 touchdowns, and we're honored to have him back with us again tonight here on Thursday Night Tailgate. Hey, Mike, Chris, and Bob, thanks for coming back on the show. Uh, Thanks for having me, guys. How are you guys doing? We're fantastic. Mike, how are you? I'm great. I am great. Uh, recovering after a long NFL season, that extra game, I don't know what that did for you guys, but that extra game in the regular season was crazy. And then what we had in the playoffs, one of the better playoff runs I think the the league has ever seen. Yeah, no, it was exciting games week after week. We were talking about that, and even the Super Bowl was really good, yeah. and we, we almost had an overtime game there, so... Yeah, postseason has been great. What, what were your thoughts, Mike, on, on what you saw on Sunday in the Super Bowl? You know, it, it kind of shook out the way that I thought it would. I, I thought we'd see a little bit more scoring early on uh, because two teams very similar, the coaching staff's kind of familiar with each other as well. And uh, the run that the Bengals are, was on, I, I thought was unprecedented uh, to be that young and to make history. Uh, with a group of core guys offensively, Joe Burrow uh, was just incredible. Uh, okay, the offensive line maybe was going to be some concern, but uh, what I saw in the playoffs was the Bengals stepping up and uh, offensive line getting it done when they needed to. Uh, and then the Rams with the star power. I, I, I thought we would have the beginning of the game similar to what we saw towards the end of the game, uh, but I was completely satisfied. I, I thought it was awesome. And Mike, as a former wide receiver, when you look at the season that Cooper Cup put together, talk about that and what what you think makes him such an outstanding wide receiver. Oh, this guy is incredible. He is so deceptive. Um, and I think that's what sets him apart. Like, you know, we have guys that can run like the wind and we have guys that are really quick, really sudden. Uh, but it's rare that you have a, a guy with all that. Like Cooper Cup is as fast as he needs to be. Um, and he's quick as he needs to be as well because he's so deceptive. He sets up a defender on the routes. He's so savvy. He's so smart, intelligent in terms of, uh, of where he needs to get to, whether it's zone or man. The timing that he has with the quarterback in the pocket when he needs to break his route off or when he needs to separate, he does that and, 
he's a viable option for the quarterback, Matthew Stafford, in this case. And, uh, you know, you, you just can't, you can't find that. You can't coach that. That, that is something that is an aid and something that Cooper Cup has developed, uh, with Matthew Stafford this year. And, and that's why he was so special. It was incredible. And Mike, for you at this time of year, when the Super Bowl is over or whenever the last game that, that the team you were on, you played that game and, and now you're uh, into the off season. How long did it take for your body to heal up? How did you get it kind of back to feeling okay again? And, and at what point in the spring or how long after the season ended were you back at it, whether it was working out, whether it was running routes or, you know, just sort of keeping your body in motion? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. I, I think you're always working out uh, because you just don't want to lose anything. You don't um, want to let all that hard work go to waste by just laying around and not doing anything. Uh, so I think you're always working out. But, you know, you, you have to understand when you need to start training. Uh, so training for the off season typically started in March. So you got about a good week before you start training. Uh, and then you ramp it up. So like, like for me, uh, you know, always working out, always in the weight room or, or doing some type of activity, whether it's basketball or, or whether it's jogging around the track or actually doing some striders or something like that. But when you start to train, getting ready for the season, uh, it's a ramp up period. So you, you have phases that you go through phase one, phase two, phase three. Uh, and ultimately that usually would start towards the end of March, uh, all through the summer. So. Uh, it's, it's, a it's a ton of work, you know, and you have to be committed to it. And, you know, the guys that are committed to it, they last the longest for sure. And they're able to stay healthy. But with this extra game, this extra game, 17 games, they, I wonder how today's players are managing that because that, that is a long haul. Bob, questions for Mike? Hey, it's great to speak with you, Mike. And we've talked in the past earlier about your early days in Atlanta. And, uh, when you came in the league in 80, in 91, you know, June Jones is there as your coordinator. You end up getting 50 passes uh, mm-hmm. in your rookie year uh, from our good friend Chris Miller. Uh, you know, it, it was a great introduction to the NFL. But talk maybe for our, some of our listeners, Mike, that aren't familiar with the run and shoot term. Talk, tell people what that means and uh, what kind of offensive mind did June Jones have? Uh, June Jones was one of the better play callers uh, in the National Football League, I believe. I, You know, to run and shoot a, a concept, of Mouse Davis and, and June Jones, uh, they, they had it in the USFL, the old USFL, uh, years ago. And, and so uh, both of those guys brought it to the National Football League, and uh, it was throwing the football, run and gun. Uh, and we were in the shotgun, too. Like some of the times, uh, if you look at Warren Moon, uh, his early days with the run and shoot in Houston, uh, they were under center, I think, a little bit more. Same thing with Detroit, too, who ran the run and shoot. But we were we were predominantly in the gun uh, a lot of times. Jerry Glanville liked the gun. He preferred the guns. I think June Jones did as well. But uh, it was similar to some of the wide-open offenses that you see today, spread formations. And we were, we were always in a spread formation. And certainly we would run the ball if the front dictated that. In other words, if they were playing the pass and we, we needed to run the football because we had an advantage there. Uh, but then obviously we wanted to throw the ball every, each and every time we were on the field. And that was exciting. You know, I was a slot receiver and, 
and I had to be on the same page as Chris Miller, our quarterback at the time. And, uh, that was always challenging in order, you know, reading the coverages the same way a quarterback is developing that timing as well. But we made it work. You know, we, we got to the playoffs my rookie year and, and had a great run, almost got to the Super Bowl that year. And Mike, we talked to Chris Miller a couple weeks ago and he brought up guys like yourself and Andre Risen. Now Risen was still a young guy when you got yeah. in the league, had had a couple years under his belt, but Miller said he was one of the best receivers he's ever been around. What kind of influence did he have on you and what made him so good? He had great influence. I, you know, I came from an option running team in college, um, but I was a big play guy. And so I averaged about 26 yards reception in college. And uh, now I was in the spot. And what Andre, my, my first year there, Andre was actually in the slot opposite me on the left side. I was on the right side. Uh, and then we found, because he's such a playmaker, uh, that we moved him to the outside. And, and that, I, I think, really made our offense go because I was on the inside and I was a possession guy. And we had Michael Haynes, uh, a spacer, out, outside of me. And then we had Andre Risen outside on the other side of the field. Uh, and that was tough to deal with. I, I mean, we really put pressure uh, on coverages and on defenses and, and opened up a lot of things. So uh, his influence uh, on me was just the mindset of becoming a playmaker in the National Football League, uh, the ability to release off the line of scrimmage in the National Football League is so much different than in the pros at that time. I mean, and in college at the time. Uh, so, yeah, he was so instrumental uh, for me understanding the nuances and learning the nuances of the game playing wide receiver. Mike, just a couple more before we let you go. And you're out there in Las Vegas again and um mm -hmm. the raiders certainly had their share of issues this season with john gruden being let go the arrest of henry ruggs and and nate hobbs plus all the issues around damon arnett who was released by the raiders and the chiefs this season for his off the field behavior yet somehow that team came together enough to make it into the playoffs what's the vibe around vegas well you know i think it's cautiously optimistic <laughs> Because, you know, the Raiders relocating to Vegas from Oakland, uh, there was a long history of, of the Raiders not making the playoffs. I, I think one time prior to this last season, uh, since 2002 of making the playoffs. And I, I think Raider Nation is, is eager for next year or this coming up, uh, this coming season later this year. Uh, and, you know, you look at the Raiders and, and I think the Raiders are a testament of the National Football League in general, guys. Like there's so much talent across the league, but can you bring it together and can you bring out the best uh, of your team? Can you become a team? And I, and I think with the Raiders and everything that you mentioned, Chris and Bob, about the adversity, uh, that brought the team together. And, and that's something that this organization had lacked for decades. And uh, we saw the best of the Raiders. We saw the best of Derek Carr. We saw the best of uh, Hunter Renfro. We saw the best of uh, you know, um, Max Crosby and some premium players on this roster that just energized each other as teammates and, and then certainly uh, raised the confidence level that was needed to go on to the playoffs. It's, it's unfortunate they lost uh, that last possession against the Bengals. It, it would have been exciting to see what kind of run the Raiders would have went on. But, but I think a lot of people are cautiously optimistic about the future. 
Mike, I'm here in Atlanta, and the Falcons are a team everyone was excited about, even after they lost the Super Bowl in, in painful fashion a few years ago. The thought was, mm-hmm. hey, these guys are young. They're on the rise. No one expected them to make it to the Super Bowl in 2016. Uh, 2016. So this is a team that's going to be good for years to come, but it went the other direction pretty quickly. Talk about um, how fragile success can be in the NFL. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it could be quick. <laughs> you know, you you want to crack open a Super Bowl window and then build, find the missing pieces to kind of complete the puzzle uh, to where you can win a Super Bowl. You look at the Rams, and they did that. Matthew Stafford, they went out and traded for a quarterback like that. Uh, and then, you know, you bring in Odell Beckham Jr. and Von Miller along the way, too. So you're, you're always tinkering. It, the, the, I think the challenge is, guys, is to get close. And the challenge for, like, the Falcons right now is how do they get close to being that perennial playoff team again? Uh, what what changes need to be made? Uh, obviously, coaches have changed. Some players have changed over, too. Uh, and, and so you look at the roster and you're like, okay, one, we got to have stability uh, from the coaching staff and, and the players if we can. And then, okay, how do we how do we get close? What do we need to do? And there's so many teams that are like that, and that's why we see – the the 500 sub 500 years from a lot of teams and, and certainly below 500, uh, but the teams that figure it out, you know, those are the teams that go on the run and and perhaps open that Super Bowl window as well. Mike, before we let you go, you're working with the VSIN, the sports betting network. Now, talk talk about how our folks can keep up to date with you and uh, listen to your show and then follow you, whether it's online or it's on social media. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for that. Uh, it's, it's Easton dot, uh, dot com, Easton Live, uh, on Twitter. Um, we, uh, Brent Musburger, uh, the Musburger family, Brian Musburger, uh, Bill 80, uh, they created this sports betting network and it's, it's unique in its own right because it's the only 24 hour, almost 24 hour complete sports betting network to where we provide information to anybody that might want to put a wager on a game. Sports betting is, as, as you guys know, is spreading across the country. And, uh, we like to pride ourselves with, with information and certainly experience with former players and betting experts from all. Uh, and so it's a year round calendar discussion uh, about sports betting and, uh, it's really growing and, uh, DraftKings is a part of our, our company as well. So, uh, can't be more excited. Uh, about the future for sure. And I'm on a show called Betting Across America. We have so many shows, but I'm going to show from 3 p.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, and you can catch that on iHeart, uh, as well as, uh, Beeson.com. Uh, and, and so, uh, it's interactive. We have a ton of great guests, experts and former players from all sports, like I mentioned. Uh, and it's been a blast, uh, each and every season. So it, it's been great so far. I cannot be more excited to be with Beeson at this point. That's fantastic. Mike, thank you so much for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. We always love getting to spend was, time with you. It was my pleasure, guys. Great to catch up with you. Take care. It's always great, Mike. Thank you. Take care, Mike. All the best to you and your family. We'll you catch too. up soon. Okay, sounds good. Take care. That is the great Mike Pritchard. We've got our next guest, Mark Collins, hanging on the line. We're going to get to Mark right on the other side of this real quick station break. Hear your favorite NFL legends sharing their stories and insights every week right here on Thursday Night Tailgate with Chris Mascaro and Bob Lazari. Take it away, guys. Is There's no way out.
All right, now back with us here on Thursday Night Tailgate is a member of our 2018 Guest Hall of Fame class, and that is former Giants, Chiefs, and Packers defensive back Mark Collins. Mark first joined us on this show back on November 21st of 2013, and he was so great. We had so much fun. He came right back the very next week to continue the conversation. Mark has been sharing great stories from his time with the Giants and being a part of their two Super Bowl championship teams. And 86 and 90, he's also given us great perspective from playing with Marty Schottenheimer in Kansas City, plus playing in Super Bowl 32 with the Packers. And as you guys have heard us say over the years regarding Mark, one of the great compliments about him came from Bill Parcells, who accurately stated that no one could cover Jerry Rice one-on-one except Mark Collins. Mark played his college ball at Cal State Fullerton, where he was a four-year starter and helped them to a pair of Pacific Coast Athletic Association championships. He was the PCAA Defensive Player of the Year in 1985, and he holds the school career record with 20 interceptions. He was inducted into their Hall of Fame in 2007, and we're honored he is back again with us tonight here on Thursday Night Tailgate. Hey, Mark, Chris, and Bob, how are you, my friend? Hi, Mark. Chris, Bob, how are you? Thanks for that. Oh, we're lovely, fantastic, lovely Mark. Introduction. <laughs> awesome, thanks. <laughs> well, I miss you guys, man. Ah, we appreciate you very much. Mark, how have you been? What's going on with you? I've been wonderful. I'm um, I'm on the West Coast right now uh, for another uh, four days. Got to be back in snowy Kansas City. So, but I've been doing well. I was out here for the Super Bowl events and parties and stuff, uh, making a little money on the side, and uh, just enjoying myself. Good for you. What did you think of the game? <laughs> you know, Honestly, you know, at first it was uh it was boring. It, it was it was really boring. I felt I was watching two teams trying to fill each other out, but as it as it got going, it was uh it got real real good. And I saw the strategy, what each team was trying to do, and it was it was uh it, it was it came down to who wanted to make the, who wants to make the play. You saw the Rams. I saw the Rams being pretty uh, short staff on the offensive side. On the offensive side, and the playmakers, you know, Cooper Cup made plays and he was double covered when OBJ went down. Higby wasn't in and they couldn't run the ball and they still mustered enough energy and gumption to, to, to come out with a win. And the defense is like, wow, what do you say about Aaron Donald? You know, uh, fantastic play at the end to, uh, Steal the deal, Mark. A, a lot of great hoopla around the halftime show at the Super Bowl, but it, it got me to to wonder: with you playing in three Super Bowls, and you've got these elaborate mm-hmm. halftime shows going on, you're back there in the locker room. I'm guessing you're used to waiting about 15 minutes. You go back there, you mm-hmm. do a couple of things, you make a couple of adjustments, talk to a couple of coaches, and then you're right back out on the field. And now in a Super Bowl. Now you're taking a really long time before you're back out there. What's it like for you guys in the locker room waiting for the halftime show to end? Well, it is what it is. I mean, you adapt to the game. You adapt to what, what the script is. You know, in the regular season, you wait in the locker room 15 minutes. But the Super Bowl, it could be up to 30, 35 minutes. That's just the deal. That's part of the script. You just adapt to it and come on and play. And usually, uh, you know, the, 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 at halftime, the teams that make better adjustments, whether it's 15 minutes or 35 minutes, will win the game. That has been the history of the Super Bowl since I've been in since 
you know, two more 21 up to 32. That's just how it is. And you saw the change. Um, what happened when the Rams came out? You saw the mentality. First of all, when the, when the Bengals came out, their mentality was first of the game. Let's, let's take a shot deep. They, they changed the whole mentality, and the Rams changed theirs too. Once they figured out they couldn't run the ball, Cooper Cup's getting getting doubled, and their defense had to make some plays. So the the deal is what the deal is, and there's nothing you can do about it. Mark, you've worked really hard over the course of your career, and you've achieved so much, going from Cal State Fullerton to being inducted into their Athletic Hall of Fame to winning a couple of Super Bowls with the Giants to making yourself a great broadcaster now. What is it inside of you that continues to drive you to be the very best? Oh, is that, that's a great question. I, I I never think of myself of anything less. Of anything less than what I, that my best is all I got. And I always strive to be better than the last time, the last day, or the last play I played. Uh, you know, I, I've always said this, and even being a dad, I strive for being father of the day every day. It's just my mentality. So, um, am I the best? I don't know, but I strive to be. So I just keep going, keep going. And same in business. You know, just you, you get a good deal. You, you try to better that deal, keep going, keep going. Uh, I think my, my hunger for, uh, not just ultimate success, because I like, I like the journey to be successful, which entails a lot of hard work. A lot of no's, a lot of get out of here, but you got to stay with it and uh, keep moving forward. And that was my mentality from when I was in high school, didn't get heavily recruited. When I went to Cal State Fullerton, and people thought, well, he'll never get a chance in the pros. And when I got a chance in the pros to the Giants, uh, they gave me the opportunity to check around to try to impress Bill Parcells and, and George Young to, you know, they didn't make a mistake. They kept going, kept going until the broadcasting booth, the business. So that's what I do. I'll, I'll keep doing that until the day I die. Mark, I was watching some highlights of your career. And November 23rd, 1986, you're with the Giants. You guys are playing the Broncos. George Martin actually intercepts a John Elway pass and returns at 78 yards for a touchdown. But that touchdown doesn't happen. If 25 doesn't come flying down the sidelines past him, blocks Sammy Winder at the 20 yard line and allows Martin to score. Talk about the all out effort there just so you can throw up blocks so your teammate scores a touchdown. Now, Bob and Chris, I'm going to tell you, you ask anybody on the Giants during that time I was on the team from 86 to 93, 94, they would tell you, Pepper Johnson, Leonard Marshall, George Martin, Harry Collins, Terry Kennard, if they get a pick or interception or pick up a fumble, I'm going to block. I'm going to bust my butt to get a block for them. So back to the story that you set up. Well, you play Denver, and I'm on the outside left corner. I'm covering um Steve Steve Wilton. Was it Steve Watson? Steve Watson. So he runs, well, like a 17 yelling or whatever. He runs like a curl around inside the end zone about five yards in the end zone I got him covered and I'm watching the play that George tips the ball, catches it and runs now I'm already probably 30 yards away from the play so George gets it and I see him running so I take 
two steps forward. I said, man, let me sprint and maybe I can make a play. And I'm hauling ass. I'm rolling. And I catch it up. I'm passing some guys up and I see Sammy Winder coming from the corner. That's my target. So I had a little cutoff point while I was to meet him. So I cut in front of George, got him right on the front side, and he fell, and I stayed flat on the ground and then popped right back up because I thought George would step over me if I raised up and would have tripped him up. So I did like a face-first plant and slid for about five yards. On that turf in the Meadowlands, it's hard to slide, but I slid. But then uh, George stepped over me, and I see him, I raised up, I see him score, and somewhere I saw a video that they did the, the end zone view from my perspective behind me, and I just jumped up with both arms up. There's a picture of it somewhere. And that, and then I ran down and of course congratulated George, but you know, that, that just goes back to, you know, the question you asked earlier. Try it, trying to be the best. Given that effort. That's what I, I like. That. That's what I do. And, you know, the end of the story is, you know, that whole week build up. And in practice, we, we, we have a pot. And the pot on the defensive side goes from, if, you, if you're size, it's a hundred bucks. If you drop an interception, it's a hundred bucks. So the pot got up and the winner of that pot gets to the next game. Well, that pot got pretty big. That pot got to almost $10,000. Wow. Right? So, jo- so George gets the big play. He gets the pot. Now, come in for practice the next day and we'll walk through practice that Monday. George calls me over. He goes, smart. Right in front of the defensive room. He goes, hey, here's 800 bucks. But without that block, you, uh, I don't, I don't get that touchdown. And I thought that was the best thing in the world because that guy, George Martin, that elder statesman of the Giants saw that as, as, as a contributing factor. That's also cool. Now with 800 bucks, I went out and bought a beer or two. That was it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Five questions for Mark. Yeah, it's great to speak with you again, Mark. And you mentioned being a second-round draft pick. I think there was only two defensive backs chosen ahead of you. But I always like to get guys that played in your era's take on their draft day because it wasn't a spectacle like it is back then. Uh, tell us, you know, your memories of that particular day. Who was the first giant person you talked to, and uh, how did that day go? Well, you know, I. I was surprised I was drafted by the Giants because I played in three All-Star games. I played in the Blue-Gray Shrine, the Blue-Gray Bowl, the East-West Shrine, and the Senior Bowl. And the reason I did that was because, because I thought I had to, you know, get more recognition coming from Florida. But even though my agent, these stats came out, and I was ranked the, the number one corner or the number three corner. He goes, Mark, you don't have to do this. So, no, I'm going to do it because I, I, I think, I, you know, so I did it. So at the Senior Bowl is where all the scouts and general managers go. And that particular year, I think uh, Dan Rees was, was my coach. And I forget who the other coach was. But anyway, so I'm down there you know, practicing and all the, co- all the coaches are there. And Mark West, Mark, Mike, Mark was DB coach, and Dan Rees was there. And these guys are telling me, oh, we're going to get you. Oh, <laughs> you're not going to go anywhere. We're going to get you. Blah, blah, blah. Then Dicker talks to me. 
I'm a, we went out to dinner with Mike Dicko. The Giants didn't talk to me not one iota, not one bit. So draft day comes along. My my school gets me a, a hotel suite downtown in Anaheim, and I invite a lot of my teammates and my family down. And when I'm watching the first round, the first round goes by, and then the second round starts. I, no one called in the first round. No one. And then uh, the Giants called right before the pick. It was uh, George Young. And then uh, I talked to Bill Parcells. And then Bill goes, hey, kid, you ready to be a Giant? Of course, I'm going to say yes. And uh, that was it. <laughs> and that was, that was it. And I didn't even, I didn't do anything for the Giants. They came out to Cal State Fullerton, I think, twice. And that was it. And I was shocked that that happened. Now, preceding that, that, my, that pick, Giants got me. I was watching the draft, and they traded Mike Haynes to Denver, and he got uh, what's the name on the lineman from uh, Minnesota Zimmerman. They, they traded his rights to the NFL, or whatever. So he got another draft pick. And my agent said, "You might go right here," and sure enough, that's what happened. I was excited. It was great. And Mark, you mentioned. You know, George Martin being a quote-unquote elder statesman and not in that team in 86. And him and Harry Carson, you know, these guys were well into their 30s, and both of them played every game. Um, so you as a young guy watching these guys, you know, bust their rumps at an advanced age, uh, it must have had an impact on you. Well, that that and their leadership and what, what they stood for. Um, we had a very solid locker room, regardless of what people think of Lawrence Taylor and Elvis Patterson or whatever. We had a solid locker room. If you notice, that year, 1986, even though George and Harry were the elder statesmen, we never sent four or five captains out for the coin toss. We sent one guy. That mm-hmm. was Harry Carson. And and that was for a reason. Even though we have Phil Sims, George, and, and those guys, he's fantastic. Leonard, those guys, great. But collectively, we all felt, you know what? Who, who personifies giant football? And that was Harry. So that was his job. I mean, that's why he, he's our he's our captain. He's our captain for life. So, but um, when I when I first got to New York to the Giants and I got significant playing time. I played every game except one because I got hurt but then taking over as a starting corner for nine, ten weeks I when I when I got inserted as a starting corner, my thing was man, I don't want to be the weak link of this defense so I, I got to really really study which I did that in college anyway but when you're a rookie you know, pick on the new guy. And the new guy's got to hold up. And I think I held up pretty well and, and got the uh, the respect from those guys early in the season. So it worked out. Mark, one more before we let you go. And I want to take you back to Christmas Eve, 1994. You're with Kansas City. And you guys played that day in L.A. against the Raiders. You get a 78-yard pick six off of Jeff Hostetler. Obviously, the guy who won you Super Bowl in 90. Was it a surreal moment to do that against Jeff? You know, I, I never thought of it 
be honest with you. I, I was just, I was just in the right place at the right time. And, um, I watched that a while ago with my boys and watching it for the first time about four or five years ago. I'm right. I'm going, Rocket Ishmael almost caught me from behind. I do fast, but it never occurred to me that it was off of Jeff and we never talked about it. We had a, a reunion some years ago in New York and we never talk about it because when you, when you do stuff like that against a former team, a teammate, even whatever the situation is, somebody you're playing against, those things very, very rarely come up. It's just part of, part of the game, part of the job. My biggest thing was I was most happy with, number one, we won and made the playoffs. And number two, I was the last, I scored the last defensive touchdown at the time as the LA Coliseum because the next year the Raiders moved back to Oakland. I was happy with that. Mark, before we let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing on your website, the things you're doing now, and also follow you on social media as well. Fantastic. Uh, I run a company called 25 Sports, and what we do is give student-athletes the opportunity to get sports scholarships. We created a great a great uh, profile, mobile profile, so a kid now can do a little reverse recruiting. They can make their profile and send it to the schools. That fits their criteria. It's a great app. You can put it on your phone, your iPad, and you can send it to any coach you want around the country. You can send it to friends, you can send it to coaches, all that stuff. It's fantastic. You can find me on Twitter at 25 Sports. Uh, Instagram, same, Mark Collins at 25 Sports. And on Facebook, Mark Collins. And I got some big news coming up probably, um, First week of March with some uh, event I'm putting on. Stay tuned, Chris and Bob. I want to let you guys. I'll let you guys. Uh, you'll be the first to know. I'll give you a private call and we'll talk about it because I want you to be involved with it as well. Oh, that sounds very exciting. Looking forward to hearing all about yeah. that, my friend. Thank you so much for that. Yeah, you're, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. I'm telling you. No doubt. Well, Mark, thank you for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. We look forward to hearing the new news in between now and then. Stay safe and all the best to you and your family. Take it easy, Mark. Take you guys. Be good. Thanks a lot. Take care, man. See you, Mark. That's a great Mark Collins. We've got our next guest, Vance McDonald, hanging on the line. We're going to get to Vance right on the other side of this real quick station break. Thursday Night Tailgate, where the spotlight is always on the positive. Tune in Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time to hear your favorite NFL legends, players, and coaches sharing their stories. Now back to Chris and Bob. I wouldn't joke about anything else that happened to you tonight. All right, now joining us here on Thursday Night Tailgate is former tight end Vance McDonald. Let me give you some background on Vance. He was born in Winnie, Texas, which is a little east of Houston. At East Chambers High School, he was named All-District at tight end and defensive end and was a standout member of the track team as well as a part of their relay team, plus doing the long jump and triple jump. Also played basketball there. He played his college ball at Rice from 2009 to 2012, and he was named to the Conference USA All-Freshman Team, and he was named a first-team All-Conference player his senior season. He was a second-round draft pick by the San Francisco 49ers in 2013, and he played for the 49ers from 13 to 2016. Then he was traded to the Steelers. Had to be the best day of his life. He would go on to play four years with my Steelers, and over the course of his NFL career, he had 181 receptions, 
for a little over 2,000 yards, and he scored 15 touchdowns. And, folks, you've heard us praise Vance and our spotlight on the positive segment for the great work he's doing with his foundation, which we are definitely going to talk a little more about. But we are honored to have Vance with us tonight here on Thursday Night Tailgate. Hey, Vance, Chris, and Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Chris. What's up, Bob? I appreciate you guys. You too. Same here. Vance, I, I want to start our time with you by going back to when you made your decision to go to Rice. Uh, I read you were a walk-on there, but you were such a great all-around athlete in high school. I have to imagine other schools were clamoring to get you to go there. How did Rice win? I actually was not a walk-on. I don't know where that legend was born, but um, scholarship was offered to me. It was their last scholarship is actually a scholarship they didn't even have at the time. Um, they had a senior graduating that fall early and they were gray shirting me, which means I started in the spring um, the following year or so. Um, but they were my only scholarship offer besides a division two school to Sam Houston. Um, so I, uh, yeah, I just took the leap. I was actually, um, I'd already been accepted as a regular student at A&M and I had plans of possibly walking on to the football team there, but I took my chances with Bryce as the scholarship was granted to me, and it was a great opportunity to get a great education as well. And so, uh, yeah, I made uh, I made all my college memories there at Rice. And Vince, I read that you were also the long snapper there. I'm surprised we didn't see you doing a little bit of that either in San Francisco or Pittsburgh. Talk about uh, I, being uh, doing that. Yeah. I... I can't, I can't tell people I, I snapped one time in a real game and I was more nervous than that than all my other plays combined as playing tight end for sure. Um, but yeah, I was, uh, I was a backup long snapper. I always just like throwing the ball as hard as I could in between my legs and trying to make our, our specialist look bad there at Rice. And, uh, anyway, it turned into a hobby of mine and my position coach actually was, he was talking to all of the tight ends at the time, just saying like, Hey, you can't ever, uh, you know, stop progressing. You can't ever, can't ever stop putting one foot in front of the other. You got to see how much you can take on, see how much you can do, because it's only going to increase your value to uh, scouts and such. So I ended up picking it up just as a, uh, just as a piece of wisdom from him. Vance, your rookie year in San Francisco, the 49ers are coming off a Super Bowl loss to the Ravens. Jim Harbaugh is the head coach. What was it like for you coming into training camp with a team that was right there on the verge of winning a championship, and now you're trying to make a name for yourself on that team. Yeah. Um, you know, I thought, you know, when I first got to San Francisco, we ended up going to the NFC Championship again that next year after they got the Super Bowl. And I thought it was just a common thing that was going to happen year in, year out. You know, make the playoffs, go deep in the playoffs, be a part of a great team. Um, and uh, But, yeah, I had uh, – I was the closest to uh, – just about the closest I ever was to coming to a Super Bowl that first year. And I, like I said, I thought it was going to be something that would just happen year after year. Um, but obviously that's, that was a tough road. Um, it's something that you learn just, man, like winning in the NFL is extremely difficult. And um, yeah, it was definitely a fun memory, a fast memory. It was a long season coming straight off of college and trained for the combine. And it's just a whirlwind being a rookie in the NFL and you go super deep in the playoffs. And it was just, I can just remember, man, it was just, it flew by. It went so fast, but um, it was definitely an experience. And Vance, your first touchdown came in week 11 of that rookie season in Seattle, 19 yards from uh, Blaine Gabbert. What do you remember about getting into the end zone uh, your first time? I can just remember thinking my buddy, 
graduated alongside me at Rice. He was playing for Seattle, and uh, he had already scored a touchdown. Actually, he was drafted in the fifth round, and I remember thinking, man, if I could score this game in front of Luke Wilson, I'd be so happy, and it ended up happening. And so uh, it was definitely a fun memory. It was cool to celebrate with him after the game and just think about how far we had come since we had been buddies and teammates at Rice um, and now both doing great things in the NFL. But it was definitely a cool experience. I was I was hungry to get in the end zone, and then when it finally happened, it was great. Five questions for Vance. Great to speak with you, Vance. Uh, you had, we had mentioned uh, you being a multi-sport athlete, and that's kind of a theme to the show, Vance. Every person we talk to say pretty much – or say the same thing about going back to their youth and, and in your case, you know, having played basketball just made them a better all around football player. Explain that in your case. Yeah, I think, you know, especially nowadays, you get in such a cases where, man, kids are focusing on one sport from such an early age and they could lead into some really nasty things like, you know, you're seeing kids in junior high with you know, if they're, if they're pitching, they, they get, you know, elbow injuries and such and things like that. And they're just getting so focused and so narrowed down on their one sport that they end up getting burned out before they even get into, you know, a college opportunity or much less into the, you know, major leagues for baseball or the NFL football and things like that. And I just think it's such a missed opportunity. You can learn so much playing other sports when it comes to just balance you know, just team chemistry. I mean, I think of it just basketball. Like it's such a more intimate experience playing on a court with five as five as a unit of five, as opposed to being, you know, at a much faster pace, much more chaotic space um, on a football field with 11. Um, but there's just so many valuable things to learn. Obviously playing different sports too. It gets you, uh, gets you experience doing different things in different, in different movements, gets you in different positions. Um, and I just think it just, it honestly just well rounds, out an athlete a lot better when you're able to play in uh, a lot more sports. And I know coming from a school in Texas, you know, I went to a small school, so there there wasn't any uh, restriction. But there's a lot of schools now, man. The, the, the student body is so big, you actually have to pick one sport and focus on one sport rather than just, like, being able to play on all of them. So it's, I was definitely uh, fortunate to be able to go to a small school and uh, basically just play everything. Um, that I could get my hands on. So that was, uh, I think it was a, a tremendous opportunity for me in my development as I was growing up. Vance, you had the fortune of playing for two of the most storied franchises without question uh, in NFL history. Uh, I just wanted you to compare the fan base to the 49ers and the Steelers. You know, every Steeler we talked to said there's no fans like that and no experience like that in the world. Chris and I go back to the 70s and 80s and remember some of these amazing type of fan uh, things that were going on at the time. But compare the two cities as far as fans and the devotion to their team. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I think, uh, it, interestingly enough, you know, I got to play one year in Candlestick before they ended up demolishing it. Um, and it was so cool. Like, there was so much culture. There's so much history there. Um, I was so excited to be able to do that, you know, just hearing stories about, you know, the stadium on the bay and just things like that. And, and just, again, obviously all the championships and the great teams that the San Francisco 49ers had um, throughout their tenure at Candlestick. And uh, it was so cool to be able to be a part of it for a season. Um, and it certainly was different. Like I would say playing at Candlestick and then playing at Levi's, there was, there was, 
a different feel, right? Like, um, and it's hard to sort of quantify and put into words, but, um, there definitely was a difference. And, you know, not to, to talk bad about anything. I, I really thoroughly enjoyed the Steelers fans, um, more. I can remember actually playing for the San Francisco 49ers and coming to Pittsburgh for a game and thinking, man, this place is really cool. Like I'd heard stories about stadiums and, um, you know, from other players and such and, uh, just, you know, their stories and kind of what their feelings were about playing in different stadiums around the NFL. Um, and Pittsburgh was always one that had a lot of allure, you know, it's right there on the rivers and, um, it was just a really neat stadium. So whenever I got my first, my first glance at it, um, I think it was my third year, uh, with San Francisco, man, I was kind of taken back. I thought it was really neat. My parents actually went to the game. They got invited on this couple of boats and stuff to hang out with uh, other Pittsburgh fans. And even though they had on 49ers jerseys and things like that. And so the fans were really welcoming. You know, they were obviously very, had great sportsmanship and they just wanted to, you know, see a good game. Obviously they wanted their Steelers to win. Um, but man, I, I really, really appreciate the Steelers fans. Um, love playing in front of them. Love the home crowd. Um, and the atmosphere that they could create. Um, you know, obviously it's, even more exciting when you have a special team, a successful team, um, and the fans are just that much more into it. But man, it was there's a lot of fun memories there at Heinz Field for sure. And Vince, when you got traded to Pittsburgh prior to the 2017 season, did you know that the Steelers had interest in you? In you? Did you know something was in the works? I had no idea. So I always tell people the story. I was we had just broken training camp. Um, we were two days out from our fourth preseason game and I thought I was going to get the rest. And so I had all these expectations kind of like lined up, right. Um, survived under the training camp, um, you know, proved my value of my new contract that I signed with San Francisco. And I get a phone call um, saying that I was traded and I can just remember thinking there's no way that this is happening right now. And um, I, I missed the call. So I, I just listened to the voice message and I shut the voice message off before John Lynch said where I was headed. Um, and so I looked at my wife who was laying next to me in bed. We had just woken up. It was early, early, early one morning, um, Tuesday morning. And it was before I was going to have to head into practice. And I was looking at her. And I was like, we're getting traded. And she's like, no way. And I was like, yeah, we're getting traded. She's like, where do you think we're going? And so we just sat there for like, I don't know, five or 10 minutes and just talked about all the possible scenarios of the places that we could end up. And, um, to hear that I was getting traded to Pittsburgh or to Pittsburgh, um, to another, you know, just absolute legendary franchise, multiple championships, knows how to win, right? Has a great culture, great locker room, um, and definitely playoff contention, uh, you know, franchise. I was super excited. I was excited to play next to Ben, excited to get my hands on, uh, on that uh, famous just Heinz Field Pittsburgh, you know, culture and uh, just embrace it with everything. So it was it was definitely a neat experience. It was a shock, but um, a welcomed experience and one that I'm really glad happened now that I call Pittsburgh home. Fans, talk about the Steelers-Ravens rivalry. Is it the nastiest rivalry you've been around or was it just as nasty between the 49ers and the Rams when you were in San Francisco? Yeah, I think um definitely some of the most hard fought games uh between the Steelers and the Ravens. And it was just 
Oh my gosh. I mean, every single time, I mean, it was something that obviously we all talked about in the locker room and gleaned over just, um, you know, when it was Ravens week, there was just that little bit of extra that you had to bring to the table. Um, you know, I always played the game aggressively. I always loved contact and I loved just to delivering the most massive blows that I could to defensive backs and linebackers and such. And so, um, it was definitely one that I looked forward to without question. Um, you know, absolutely loved the idea of, you know, having that physical game play between two opponents and just knowing that the one who, you know, came and brought the physicality the hardest and the most was probably the one that was going to win. Um, and not at the same time too, not letting those emotions kind of get the best of you, right? Like it, I, that was one thing that I always appreciated and respected about the rivalry between the Steelers and the Ravens was, it was always out of good sportsmanship. Like we played hard, you fought hard, but at the end of the day, you respected the man on the other side of the ball. And so definitely a cool thing uh, to be a part of for sure. And speaking of coming to blows with defensive backs, you delivered one of the great stiff arms in the history of the NFL against Bucks uh, defensive back Chris Conti on what turned out to be a 75 yard uh, touchdown catch and run. Do you keep the highlights of that on the TV for when the fellas come over to, watch the game or when dinner parties are going on. Talk about that play. Man, there's been so many great plays in the history of not just the NFL, but even just the Steelers. And to be, you know, recognized as a part of one of those those great moments, um, it's just an absolute honor. I, you know, I can just remember thinking um, they blew a coverage um, as I was on the left side of the field and I knew I was wide open and I just wanted to get my head around as quickly as I could for Ben. Um, and knowing I caught it, I knew that there was going to be one defender between me and what could possibly be a large breakout run. Um, and so I wound up, and I just remember thinking, I'm going to hit him as hard as I possibly can uh, to see if I can knock him out of my way. And I just – I can't say much more than that. Like, it ended up working out, and I got to turn on the Jets and go run to the end zone, and it was just a great, absolute great football memory for me, without a doubt. Bob, a couple more for Vance. Yeah, sure, Vince. Just wanted to get your thoughts about Mike Tomlin as a coach. You know, being a defensive-minded coach, uh, how did he put his stamp at all on the offensive schemes at all, Vince? Yeah, I mean, obviously, like, you know, at the end of the day, offense, defense, uh, you know, um, it's, it really is all about discipline and just doing your assignment. And that's one thing that I, re- I just appreciate about Coach Tomlin the most. He was such a transparent coach. And yes, while he was a defensive-minded coach, like he still knew a lot about the offensive side of the ball, what we were doing, what our scheme was. And again, he just coached the fundamentals, right? Like trusted the coaches that he had on the offensive side of the ball that they would do their job, but just listening to him kind of drive those points home, right? It's all about fundamentals, taking care of your job, doing your job, and being accountable for that to your teammates. That's what made a big difference to me as him as a leader. Um, You know, it started with him. It ended with him, um, and like I said, he is such a transparent man, such a transparent coach, and people always ask me, you know, what's Coach Tomlin like behind closed doors? What's he like in the meeting rooms and things like that? And I always tell people, you see how he is in the interviews on TV? He is exactly like that. He is the same man every single day, and I always talk to him. I always ask him, he's like, Coach, how, how can you be so consistent every single day? And he always told me it's something that he works on. Like, he, he's intentional. He journals, he meditates, reflects, and he spends the he spends the the time needed to to allow it to be possible, right? And he, I'm just I can't say enough 
good things about that man. He is, he is an unbelievable coach. He's an unbelievable friend, a mentor, um, and an, and an incredible leader. And, um, I mean, I just, I'd be happy to see him just play out and, and coach out his years, um, until he, uh, until he decided he didn't want to do it anymore and just send them all at Pittsburgh because I just think the world of him. And finally, Vince, we uh, always like to t- talk to guys about, at this time of the year especially, what their off-seasons consisted of. I'm sure a guy like you who uh, played an awful lot of games would maybe take a week or two off and then get back to it. Tell us about your normal off-season routine back in the day. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, Man, I, I put a huge emphasis on rest. And I know for me, just even mentally, it just it's such a long road. Um, and, and, and not even what it requires of you, um, you know, when you're actually doing the job, right? Like whether you're at practice, you're playing a game, it's the mental gymnastics that you play with yourself leading up to those moments, right? It's the months leading up to training camp where you're trying to get your mind right. Um, and it's just this mental warfare game of just knowing you're going into a hostile environment. If I could use some words of Coach Tomlin. You're going into a hostile environment and you know you got to come out a victor. Um, and, and it's just, you're having those mini battles all throughout the season. You're having them in between plays. And it's just extremely important to be able to hit pause, step away from the game, in my opinion, and take a mental break and a physical break. So I would, I would actually take a full month off, um, without doing anything. I wanted my body to completely rest physically. I wanted my mind to completely rest mentally. Um, and that was the first thing I would do every single off season. Um, and I, I went to school for kinesiology, uh, sports medicine. And then one of my favorite things, some of my favorite classes was just nutrition, um, and just biomechanics and exercise physiology. And I, I, I learned the true value of what the mind can do and accomplish when it's in that state of just absolute rest and repair. Um, and if without it, I can't, I can't emphasize it enough. You can enter the next season you know, at 80% and you would not even know it. And so I would put a huge emphasis on completely stepping away from all responsibilities physically and mentally from the game of football. And that's where I would start my offseason. Advanced, speaking of stepping away, you're only 31 years old. What told you that it was time to move on after last season? Yeah, it's just, man, it's one of those things that you, I mean, I continue to evaluate it, right? Um, but it's just all all signs kind of point to it's just time. Um, it had to do with my kids. It had to do where I was um, at the point of my life. You know, I played eight years. I was super excited about, uh, you know, the career that I had. I was happy to play eight years. I was walking away healthy. Um, you know, I didn't have to have any surgeries stepping away from the game. And so that was a positive thing um, to be able to roll right into my offseason and then transition to retirement. Um, you know, without being in the hospital for anything. Um, but it's just, I don't know. I just felt like it was time. Um, a big decision make, uh, point was just realizing and thinking that, uh, the foundation, one of the things that we're doing here now, uh, post football was, was something that I wanted to put in, in, uh, take, you know, off the back burner and kind of put in the front sights. And, um, you know, it's something that we were super excited about, wanted to share with people. Um, and we just felt the timing was right to just jump on it and run with it. And so, uh, that's what we decided to do. You know, my life, it was a, it was a collective decision between my wife and I, you know, she was happy and excited for me to walk away. Um, she was encouraging me to play more. Um, 
at the start, but, you know, I just kept telling her, I said, Bailey, I just, I think it's time. Um, I think it's time for us to, you know, just jump, dive right into this foundation. And this, this vision that we've casted for ourselves. And uh, so we decided to do just that. Well, let's talk about that for a minute, because Vance, we've had you in our spotlight on the positive segment in the past for the great work you're doing with your foundation. Last year, you were the Steelers Walter Payton Man of the Year nominee. Talk about your foundation, what you're doing in conjunction with Convoy of Hope, and what it meant to you to be the Steelers nominee for the Walter Payton Man of the Year. Yeah, it was a tremendous honor. I you know I'd say it's one of the highest honors I've ever received uh, in my career, um, without a doubt. You know, I think, you know, it's one thing to make echoes throughout the NFL while you're playing and to make a real impact and be, a, you know, a, a catalyst for, you know, winning a game or having a winning season. Um, but it's a whole other thing to make wake. Um, in the world of the not in the nonprofit world or just in the world of just outside of football, using your platform and maximizing that opportunity, right, to create some real good. And um, on top of that, just being recognized for it was just a tremendous honor. And it's something that I'm so appreciative of um, for the Steelers to recognize me in that way, for my teammates to recognize me in that way. And so um, my wife and I set out back in 2017. We started praying about you know, what it is God would use us for um, once we decided to step away from football. And long story short, we met so many incredible people doing so many incredible things. And we figured out a real interesting sort of caveat in all that. In that, Let's say you have a person who's, you know, um, they're driven to support a mission that is feeding kids. Well, the the mission there is feeding kids, right? And, and that's what gets highlighted, right? It's this cause, you know, obviously no one wants to see a kid go hungry. But at the end of the day, we, my wife and I discovered that the people that are actually running the missions and things like they're people at the end of the day, and they need support, they need encouragement, they need a place of rest, they need a place to recharge. And so we decided to set out to create a retreat center um, that's faith-based. We're going to host leaders um, that work in faith-based nonprofits, pastors, ministers, and uh, to host them so that they can get away, hit pause, just like I was talking about in the offseason for me in football. And so they can get away, hit pause, and they can continue to feel motivated and led to do the good works that they're doing for the world. And, um, again, we just, we've just we heard so many stories over the years um, of people doing so many amazing things, and yet, for whatever reason, they just feel overburdened. They feel burned out. Um, they can even you know, hit levels of depression um, just because they feel so isolated and alone. And it's an, it's just an interesting dynamic, right? Because they're doing amazing things and people on the outside might think that their, their lives are all put together, but man, deep down, they're actually really struggling. They're doing a great cause. They're, they're supporting a great cause. They're leading a great cause. But like, again, they need those supports. They need that level of encouragement. And so my wife and I decided that, that we're going to make it our job and our mission to support as many people as we can in those in those areas. Vance, before we let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with you, the great things you're doing, and uh, your foundation as well, whether they're following you and it's online or it's on social media? Yeah, so I am actually not on social media. I gave that up about five years ago. Um my foundation is not on social media either. However, we do have a website. 
So if you are interested, you can visit www.thevmfoundation.com. So VM as in Vance McDonald's. And that's thevmfoundation.com. Um, we have a way for, for people to donate if they want to do that online to support us. But, um, there's a lot of information that can be found on that website. We're in the, uh, in the short term, we are looking to update our website, but, um, at the same time, you can subscribe and we send out an occasional newsletter to just update what's going on on the farm here at the retreat um, and sort of like what our next steps are and uh, also just sort of highlight some of the accomplishments that we've done so far on the retreat. So if that's something that's interesting to you, um, if you're a listener, uh, feel free to visit our website and subscribe and you can receive those newsletters and those updates from us. Well, Vance, it has been fantastic having you as part of the show. We can't thank you enough for your patience tonight and then being a part of it. We hope you'll come back and join us again sometime. That's awesome. I appreciate that, Chris. I appreciate it, Bob. That was great talking to you guys as well. Same to you. Thank you, Vance. Vance, take care. All, right. All the best to you and your care. family. We'll catch up soon. Likewise. Good luck to you guys. Take care. That is the great Vance McDonald. Bob, I tell you what, um, a guy who had a, a wonderful career, but the things that he's doing, like I say, we, we've spotlighted him before, but uh, what he's doing through his foundation and Convoys of Hope and uh, the name, he mentioned his farm. It's called Hidden Meadow Farm and Retreat. It's uh, a little outside of Pittsburgh, but um, a guy that's just fantastic and doing so, so many great things. It's, uh, it's, heart, it's heartwarming having someone like that to, uh, to end our 10th season on. Well, a couple of things, Chris. When you talk to Vance, first and foremost, you get the idea uh, how intelligent a man he is, um, and you know he, he's he's he just makes a lot of sense. You know, here's a, here's a guy that played eight years in the league, got out with his health intact at age thirty, very thankful for everything he did. Not one of these guys that wants to eke out a few more years and put your health at risk. So you could you could tell this guy is always thinking, and, and of course. While I'm hearing him speak, I'm thinking, you know, what he did on the football field, you know, it's just going to get trumped by everything he's doing for the rest of his life. Because you know this guy's in it for the long term. And the amount of lives this guy can change um, over the next few decades is phenomenal. And I'm just glad his name has come up in the past when we do our positive spotlight. But um, he was terrific, Chris. Uh, Just an amazing man. Yeah, 100%. Can't wait to have him back on next season. I want to thank Lynn Molyneux from the Steelers for setting up the interview with Vance. She has been a wonderful help. And Lynn, thank you so very much for helping us get Vance on the show. All right, when Bob and I come back, we'll be turning on our Thursday night tailgate spotlight on the positive. Here are two more great stories about guys out there doing great things in their communities. And then we're going to wrap up this season. We'll do it right on the other side of this real quick station break. Thursday Night Tailgate, where the spotlight is always on the positive. Tune in Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time to hear your favorite NFL legends, players, and coaches sharing their stories. Now back to Chris and Bob. I wouldn't joke about anything else that happened to you tonight. We are back here on Thursday Night Tailgate, and we're turning on our spotlight on the positive. Bob, who are you putting your spotlight on this week? Well, first, Chris, I think you'll uh, join me in congratulating Andrew Whitworth of the Rams, who was named the Walter Payton Man of the Year. We've brought him up before, Chris, uh, you know, well-deserved, and, and if people need to go to the 
NFL Man of the Year uh, spot on the NFL website. Just check out Whitworth. Uh, he's been nominated a ton, of time, a ton of times, but he finally did win, Chris. And wouldn't it be great uh, if he does retire, he goes out as the Walter Payton Man of the Year and a Super Bowl champion. Isn't that just awesome? So yeah. uh, congrats to him. But uh, since we mentioned him in the past, I just want to get as many nominees uh, mentioned this year as we can. And our last one tonight, I'm going to put it on Jerome Baker the linebacker for the Dolphins. You know, he's got roots, Chris, in the Cleveland area, having uh, attended Ohio State, and he's been a, a very good linebacker for the Dolphins for a few years now. But, uh, you know, I think it's it's terrific, Chris. He was born on Christmas Day, Jerome Baker, and he's made it a point to uh, host a Christmas, a Christmas event for the Boys and Girls Club of Miami uh, since he got down uh, to Florida a few years ago. Uh, and he gives, he says, Hosting that for the Boys and Girls Club is a birthday to myself. So he considers him, his uh, volunteerism as a birthday gift, gift to himself. That's the kind of guy he is. But, you know, uh, back last summer when a, uh, a building collapsed in the Surfside area of Miami, Chris, he was one of the first on the scene. He got together with some small businesses in that area and uh, got a food truck together to provide all the meals to the first responders and uh, some of the victims. And uh, uh, he's done things like that. Also, later, just a couple months later last summer, Chris, so when the earthquake in Haiti hit, uh, he's one of the guys that sprung into action right away. He got on to, uh, got on the phone call to the mayor uh, and donated a lot of items to Haiti for the earthquake relief. Um, you know, and he's got his own foundation, Chris. I mean, even though he's still a kind of a young guy, he's got something he calls the Expand the Land Foundation. And that helps kids in uh, his hometown of Cleveland and, of course, where he is now in Miami. Uh, does a lot of, um, you know, he's done virtual stuff online with COVID, uh, you know, donating backpacks to young kids. Um, you know, he's done a lot with Cleveland area students uh, as far as getting them um uh, technology things, partner, partnering with Microsoft and everything. And, uh, you know, again, he's, uh, his health, he's never forgot his high school, Benedictine High School in Cleveland. And, uh, when COVID-19 hit there, he actually did a, uh, socially distanced backpack giveaway for kids in grade two and eight. And he motivates kids and you got to go to the website, the man of the year section of the NFL.com. And there's a great pictures of, of him. He's sitting in the middle of about 60, 70 kids, Chris. It's a terrific uh, picture. And every one of those kids was given a Dolphin T-shirt to wear. It's just awesome. And the kids are just uh, so excited to be around him. But uh, Jerome Baker will be our last guy I mentioned this year. But, again, congrats to all these guys, Chris, who get it done on a daily basis. But tonight we had to put the spotlight on Jerome. Ah, very nice. Good for Jerome. And, and, and again, congratulations to Andrew Whitworth for uh, – Two great things, right? Walter Payton, Man of the Year, and winning a Super Bowl, just like you pointed out. So congrats to both of those guys. Bob, I'm putting my last spotlight of the year on Bucks tight end Rob Gronkowski. Gronk set up a Gronk Nation Youth Foundation along with his four brothers. Can you imagine about five Gronkowski boys? Four of which, oh, by the way, played in the NFL. Dan Gronkowski played. For the Browns, Broncos, and Patriots, Glenn played for the Bills and the Patriots. Chris played for the Cowboys, Colts, and Broncos. And the oldest brother, Gordy, played professional baseball and was in the Dodgers minor league system 
for a few years. So talk about a very talented and athletic family, Bob. That's these guys, unbelievable. Um, well, they all got together to put this foundation uh, together, and they they provide support for education and encourage extracurricular activities for kids. Their goal is to inspire kids to reach their maximum potential through sports, education, community, and fitness. They're trying to help kids stay active and involved in school and in sports and provide them with the tools that they're going to need to help them follow their dreams and live happy and successful lives. And they do it through providing grants. Plus, the brothers do appearances at events and selected nonprofit organization events uh, throughout the year. And not that long ago, oh, by the way, they donated $70,000 to Boston schools for female sports equipment. Last May, Rob hand delivered a check for $1.2 million to renovate the Charles Bank playground in Boston along the Charles River, even though he was playing for the Bucks last season. And he said that the Patriots organization taught him the importance of giving back from the very first day he was there. So kudos to not only Rob Gronkowski, but the whole Gronkowski family who are actively supporting kids and getting them involved in good education and involved in sports and extracurricular activities to keep their bodies and their minds sharp, Bob. I thought it was an impressive thing by that family. You know, it's amazing to me, Chris, as popular as Gronk is, uh, I didn't know much about this. And that goes to what you and I say all the time. It doesn't get publicized. What we read in the headlines sells uh, clicks and sells newspapers, the bad stuff. But, uh, you know, as popular as he is, I don't know if anybody knew, you know, that he did things like that. I'm, I'm sure they know he's done uh, some charitable things in the past, but you know, kudos to him. And I, I guess it's up to guys like us to bring it out because it does not get publicized enough. Yeah, and, and talk about all five boys getting involved, and it's not just it's not just Rob. And I understand that he's he's the one we know uh, at least the majority about. But uh, five brothers doing good things, and kudos to his parents too, because. They raised uh, five boys right to be out there in their communities and giving back and knowing the importance of doing it. And to the Patriots organization, like Gronk says, they taught him the importance of giving back from the very first day he was there. So kudos to all involved. And I think you'll agree with me, Chris, that that's the best way to end our 10th year is to put the spotlight on two guys who uh, don't make the headlines for the wrong reasons but are going to be featured on the show when, as long as we keep doing it. That's exactly right. All right, my friend, it's time to put a bow on this season of Thursday Night Tailgate. Our thanks again tonight to Leonard Marshall, Tony Collins, Mike Pritchard, Mark Collins, and Vance McDonald for joining us. And, Bob, it's been a privilege to get to do this for a 10th season with you, my friend. Thank you so much. Same here, Chris. That was a blast. And, wow, what a packed lineup tonight. They all delivered. They're all great friends. And it was terrific. And, uh... I'm sure we'll be doing some golf stuff uh, in the spring or spring, summer or whatever, but uh, year number 10 was great. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it was. I enjoyed it very much. Folks, you can follow us on social media, on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me at CT Mascaro. Bob is at Bob underscore Lazari, and the show is at TNT Podcast. Please visit us on Facebook as well. Bob and I have our own Facebook pages, plus we've got one for the show, and giving us a like is very important to us. Please also check out our website, ThursdayNightTailgate.com. And folks, this show is available as a podcast on a number of great sites like Podbean, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify. And as Bob mentioned, uh, 
pretty shortly. I'll be transitioning over to golf on Next on the T. So please check out nextonthetee.net. And uh, on that show, just like this one, we uh, we talk to the legends of the PGA and LPGA tours, plus the top instructors in the game. Bob joins me from time to time and has great guests that he brings along with him, uh, namely our good friend Nathan Grube. Uh, so uh, we'll, be, we'll be transitioning over there in March. Bob, take us home one last time, my friend. All right, Chris. Always an honor working with you, man. And uh, we also want to thank our great announcer, Joe Lajanusa, for the wonderful job he always does with our intro and ads. We want to shout out to Kyle Turley and the Kyle Turley Band for the upcoming outro music. And on behalf of myself and Chris, we have to thank the fans out there tonight for listening. We appreciate you the very most. Until next season, folks, good night, Kevin. Good night, Terry. Good night, Rusty. And good night, Coach Reeves. We miss you guys. Coming down the mountain, I take a breath of sin. Can't tell the day or time, but I know this day will end. On a mission I can't see, they say I. 